Yes, this is the place, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is the place where we challenge one another, where we grow our faith, where we develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And yes, you're in the right place, and I hope by the time we finish, you will be absolutely convinced that you are in the right place, because I hope this program today helps you adds value to your life, expands your understanding, enlarges your soul so that you will better appreciate what God has given us in the scriptures. And more specifically, we're going to talk about the story of Christmas and of Christ coming to to earth. And I hope that these ideas won't um, shake your understanding because we're going to talk about some things that we pretend are so that aren't, but we're going to also get into things that we're pretty sure are so, and make a whole lot of difference. Specifically, we're going to talk about when was Jesus born and why that matters. When was Jesus born and why that matters? Almost certainly it wasn't December 25th, but we have a pretty good idea of when it was. And because of that, there's a huge implication for why that matters. So we're going to get into that uh, in a few minutes. But first, I want to start out with something different. I'm not sure I've ever mentioned this on, on this program before, but every week I write a letter. It's not a long letter. It's a one-page letter that I send by email or I mail a few to people who prefer to get it that way. But it's just a letter from me. I call it by a real fancy name, the pastor's letter. And it's just a letter. Sometimes it's challenge. Sometimes it's inspiration. Sometimes it's just what happens to be on my mind. Sometimes it's related to what we did on Sunday. A lot of times here lately, it has been related to the things that we do at church on Sunday. And this past week, I, I was thinking about Advent and preparing for all of that. And, and so I thought, well, maybe it'd be helpful for you if I share the letter that I sent to people on November 30th. That was just two days after the um, first, first Sunday of Advent, first weekend that we celebrate the beginning of Advent. And I had written it the, the week before to get it. There has to be a little time for processing and all of that. But I just, as I was thinking about it a little bit more, I thought this might be something that would help you as you prepare for the coming of Christ, as you settle into the Advent season. And so let me just read this to you, and hopefully it will provide some help for you. Dear friends, I've been thinking about and preparing for Advent worship. So many wonderful themes, so much hope and plenty of challenge. We'll try to touch on all of it. But then I started wondering about this letter. Since this is the first letter of Advent, what is of primary importance to start the season? And then it dawned on me a, a bit like the dawning light of Advent. As I write this, I'm waiting at Grand Rapids International Airport for my flight home. It's been a terrific visit to family. Thanksgiving dinner was excellent. And don't even get me started on the apple pie. It was undoubtedly one of the best ever. And, and I'll add in here, my wife made that pie, and it really was one of the best ever. Just the right amount of sweetness, just the right amount of tart. Well, anyway, don't get me started. Let's get back to the letter. But now my thoughts turn toward home. It's always a bit sad to leave family, and yet there's something about home. We're just drawn home. Home is familiar. Home is comfortable. Home is where we belong. Home is, well, home. 
That's why the phrase home for Christmas resonates with us. One of the primary themes of Advent is preparation for going home. Jesus reminds us when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up for your salvation is near. Soon we'll be going home. Of course, any trip home requires preparation. That's one of the gifts of Advent. As we anticipate and prepare for the coming of Christ at Christmas, we also prepare for his second coming and going home. One day he will call us home. At that moment, there won't be time to prepare. So prepare now, get ready. We're going home. And it will feel like, well, home. And you know, sometimes people think about the return of Jesus and they wonder about what's going on and they get caught up in the speculations and all of that. I don't think that's the point at all. In fact, I discourage speculations. Jesus himself said that the father knew he didn't know. And I don't, last I could tell, there's no place in the Bible that indicates that God is going to tell any of us. But he does say over and over that we need to prepare to get ready. And we also need to realize that, that while it's a bit of a mystery what that all means, one thing is for sure, it will feel like home because that's where we're meant to be. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And so that place is where we were meant to be prepared just for us. And so we are going home. That's one of the key points of Advent, the realization that one day he's coming and the reminder we need to prepare. That's why I talked about preparation relative to December 26th. How are you going to prepare for December 26th? Because how we think about some of those kind of things really reflects how we prepare for the coming of Jesus. And that's why I talked about challenging us to read from Luke on the corresponding days, the chapters of Luke leading up to Christmas Eve. It's because we need to take seriously this idea of preparing. And I want to encourage you to make sure you're prepared because at going home is going to be really cool. And I don't want you to miss it. We need to be prepared. So we're preparing for the arrival of Jesus. And one of the things that I suggested is that we need to think about when was Jesus born? When was Jesus born? Now, I said earlier that almost certainly it wasn't December 25th, and I don't think people dispute that anymore. Most everybody agrees that that was rather arbitrary. A lot of discussion, if you read the history, and, and I've only read a little bit of it, about how that date was chosen and why. Uh, one of the intriguing things is that, yes, or in that area or that period of time, December 25th, there was a pagan holiday. And so some people suggest that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas because of its association on the calendar with that pagan holiday. Uh, and nobody seems to dispute that there was the association. But, but let me suggest this, and, I, and I've seen this in a couple of places, and, and I, I really like it. Some of what I've gotten today and, and the best part of what I want to share with you today comes from some th reminders that I got from a man named Jim Garlow. And I give him credit for all the good stuff that, that I might be able to provide for you today. And if I mess it up, well, that's not his fault. That's, that's mine. But, but Jim has had a real interesting insight. And I, and I thought the same thing. I'd kind of had that in the back of my mind. But he said it straight up. And so being a better historian than I am, I believe him. He said, why are we so worried about an association with a pagan holiday? Isn't God big enough to eclipse any 
date on the calendar, any period of time, and to demonstrate that he is bigger than all of that? And isn't the birth of Christ a way to reinforce that this is far superior celebration than what you're doing? See, the, the pagan holiday was related to the sun, S-U-N. And isn't it interesting, and wouldn't it be like God to say, hey, get your mind off that sun, S-U-N, and look at my son, S-O-N. He is the Christ. He's the one that's going to save the world from its sins. And I think that that's a very, very helpful way to look at that. Let's think about how God can eclipse the worst things that happen. Let's think about how God can take terrible circumstances in our lives, and, and in a way that we could hardly anticipate and we can hardly describe, he makes something good out of that. And he's able to redeem the worst things that happen to people because that's what he does. And so I don't think we need to worry about the association with December 25th. And I don't think we need to worry about changing our celebration time. Uh, I'm, I'm going to suggest that Jesus wasn't born and give you an idea of why I think he was born at a different time in the calendar. But I don't think there's any need to change the way we do things at this point. I think we just need to celebrate and put the focus on him because the when he came isn't near as important as the rea reality that he did come. So let's not get all distracted by some of those other things. Let's focus on the reality that he came. And let's talk about when was he born and why is that significant? Why should that matter to us? Well, to do that, we're going to draw on a couple of sources, primarily Luke. And I want you to look at the first couple of chapters of Luke. We're going to look mostly at chapter one. But it, for, to begin with, let's start with the shepherds so we kind of locate ourselves in a beginning place on the calendar and then work from there on some other things. We can start any place, but this is a good place to start because we're all familiar with it. In Luke chapter two, we are reminded that the shepherds were out in the fields watching their flocks. And at night, the angel came and spoke to them and announced the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. So the key part of this for, for us to say, now, when was Jesus born, is the, the idea, the reality, the biblical support for the shepherds were out in the fields. Now, we know from history, from the historical records of those times, that shepherds kept their flocks out in the pastures from spring to early October. As cold weather approached, as winter approached, they would return from the fields and bring the flocks in where they could have shelter and warmth. So because they were out in the fields, we know that the arrival of Jesus was sometime early October or before, certainly not later than October. So our December 25th date, well, take heart, we're only about three months off. So that, that's pretty close. You know what you think? Well, that narrows it down a little bit that it had to have been sometime when the shepherds had their flocks out in the pasture from spring to early October, approximately. And to be sure, it's difficult to be real precise about this because we don't have that precise of information. We have really excellent information. I think if you have never put this together, you will connect some dots today and you'll, you'll agree this is really helpful stuff. So let's now tackle some more information we get from these early uh, verses in Luke, chapters 1 and 2. Let's start with this. Priests in those days rotated their temple service. They were divided into 24 groups, and we know this from historical records. I'm not sure you can find all of this exactly in the pages of the Bible, 
But we know this from the, the records and the history that was kept, that they were divided into 24 groups that rotated their temple service. We know that the Abijah group was the eighth group, and they served in the temple during the 10th week, what they called the 10th week. In our calendar, and I'm going to use our calendar for reference because it just, just gets too confusing to try to go back and forth. So the 10th week would have been in their cycle, in the way they measured, it would have been approximately mid-May to mid-June. Okay, so that's when the Abijah group served in the temple. That's when they performed their priestly duties. That's when they took their turn in the rotation to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, in Luke chapter 1, we read about a man named Zechariah. Now, you may remember that name, Zechariah was Elizabeth's husband. Zechariah and Elizabeth were the parents of John the Baptist. So the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, opens with the story of the birth of John the Baptist. And so let me just read a little bit here, starting with Luke chapter 1, verse 5, and I'm going to use the New International Version today to read from. Verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So what's important here to get started is that Zechariah was a member of the division of priests named Abijah. He was part of the Abijah group, and the Abijah group served in the temple mid-May to mid-June. We don't know the exact dates, but that's a good range. Okay, so part of the story was that when Zechariah was serving in the temple, it was his turn to go in to the um, place where they burned incense, and he was chosen by lot to go in there and do that, and he, he met an angel in there that told him that he and his wife were going to have a baby. Now, that was pretty stunning news because we just read they were both very old. And so that really caught Zechariah by surprise. And he, he, well, didn't quite believe the angel. And so you may remember the story. The angel said, well, because you didn't believe it doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but it means you're not going to be able to speak until it does happen. And so Zechariah finishes his priestly service, and this is the part that begins to make sense to us. And um, people there realized he had seen a vision. They couldn't quite put it all together because of all that, and then he couldn't speak about it. So that was really interesting. So in verse 23, we pick up the story. He's finished his priestly duties now between mid-May and mid-June. And verse 23 of chapter 1 says, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So in spite of the fact that Zechariah and Elizabeth were old and didn't expect to have any children, true enough, sure enough, the promise of God through the angel to Zechariah came true, and Elizabeth became pregnant shortly after Zechariah returned home. It says she kept herself in seclusion, and I want you to notice what it says here, kept herself in seclusion for five months. That's verse 24 of Luke chapter 1. 
So she rejoiced at this. She it's, it describes here that the Lord has taken away her disgrace because it was considered a disgrace in those days not to be able to have children. And so she went into seclusion during this time, expecting the baby. Really a fascinating, wonderful thing, don't you think? So then in verse 26, we pick up the story again and continue. And now we get into the part that really gives us tantalizing clues as to when was Jesus born. Verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So we're tracing the months, and we're tracing the months to try to determine when was Jesus born. Okay, so we started with Elizabeth, who became pregnant, went into seclusion for five months, and then in the sixth month of her pregnancy, an angel appeared to Mary and said that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and that she would become pregnant with a baby, and she would name him Jesus. He would be the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Quite an announcement. So, so the sixth month is, if you're, if you're counting, remember, Zechariah served mid-May to mid-June, so six months later would be July, August, September, October, November, December. That would be six months. And it was in that sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy that the angel appeared to Mary, and Mary became pregnant with the Son of God. So that would be December. Follow so far? Okay, let's continue. Verse 39, this picks up right after the angel left Mary. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. 
blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So if there was any doubt that Mary became pregnant in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, it's satisfied there because when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and, and she walks in, Elizabeth's child has not yet been born yet. John the Baptist has not yet been born, leaped in her womb, and, and she recognized that Mary was going to bear a child, and this child would be special. This child would be blessed. And so we have set up the chronology to determine, and through the text of the Bible, to determine when Jesus was born. So if Mary became pregnant in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and that sixth month was December, then nine months later, the period of time it takes for a baby to be born would be about mid to late September. So yeah, we're about three months off in our choice of date to celebrate the birth of Christ. But isn't that fascinating? how God has given us those details. I was thinking about that. Not only is it really fascinating that we can, that we can have this really good idea that, that Jesus was born in September, but sometimes we look at the Bible and, and we see all these, what look like extraneous details sometimes. And maybe you don't think of them that way, but sometimes we wonder, well, why did it matter that Zechariah was of the priestly division of Abijah? Well, it mattered because it helps us identify on the calendar when he served in the temple and when Elizabeth became pregnant so we could understand when Mary became pregnant so we could understand that Jesus was then born in September. Isn't it remarkable how God is willing to do that? Why would, you know, you might ask yourself, why would the Bible care? Why would they bother to mention that Elizabeth went into seclusion for five months? You know, why does that matter? Well, part of it we understand because it was a disgrace among the people and part of it, maybe she was just being careful because she didn't want to lose the baby. I don't, I don't know all the reasons for the seclusion, but that's not the point. The point is, why does it mention the five months? Why, do, why does it matter? Well, we, we notice that so we can be prepared for the birth of a baby. And, and I guess the scriptures tell us that so that we can be prepared for the birth of Jesus and to understand what's involved in that because it is a big deal, the coming of Messiah. And, and it, in Luke chapter one, it gives us all this rich understanding. And, and the more I look at the Bible, the more I begin to see how the dots are connected and things, the more amazing it becomes. Because we, we sometimes think about the big picture things, the, the, the maybe we might call them more important things. And we tend to wonder about the details. And, and we tend to wonder about why are we getting caught up in the details? But here it's very clear about the details, very clear why that helps us. It's very clear why we understand that, it, that Zechariah was part of the priestly division of Abijah. It's very clear that we understand that, that he and Elizabeth were old and had not been able to have children. But, but now, because of God's work in their lives, the angel comes and says, you're going to have a baby. It's very clear why it says in here that, that Zechariah was chosen to... Um, to go into the, into, into the temple to burn the incense. Verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Well, that was the way they did that. They did go in there and choose them by lot, but 
But isn't it remarkable how God had his hand on that? And in this particular time, he chose Zechariah so Zechariah could go in and hear from the angel and, and come back with this remarkable news that that a baby was going to be born even in his old age, even when it was totally unexpected. And isn't it remarkable that that we're told how great a guy was and how faithful he and Elizabeth served God, but then we're told quite honestly that, um, well, Zechariah had trouble with that. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Isn't that remarkable? You know, here's a man who has been faithful all of his life, but quite understandably, we would say he had trouble believing the angel. And the angel said, hey, it's going to happen. There's no doubt about this. Uh, but you're going to be silent, not able to speak until it happens because you didn't believe my words. And you should have believed my words because I stand. Remember, he, Gabriel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence, in the presence of God. And I've been sent to talk to you. Isn't that remarkable? What amazing detail we have. And so, Zechariah spent a longer time in there doing his priestly duties and expected it normally didn't take as long as he spent. And so people were wondering what had happened and was very clear when he came out that something had happened and they realized that he had seen this vision. He had met this angel and he, all he could do was try to communicate with some kind of sign language because he was, was not able to speak. And then the events unfold most remarkably. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Six, in her sixth month, Mary hears from the angel and goes to see Elizabeth. And it's confirmed between the two of them that God was up to something truly remarkable. And nine months later, based upon this information that we have in Luke, nine months later, Jesus would have been born sometime in September, um, probably about mid-September, maybe late September, but probably something in that area, mid to late September. We don't, again, know exactly, but there's something really important happened in the life of God's people at that time of the year besides the birth of Jesus. And so part of what we want to think about, and we're going to do that in a little bit when we get back from, from taking a break, partly what we want to think about is why does it matter that we know when Jesus was born? Well, in, in one sense, it doesn't, because as I said, and we need to remind ourselves, what matters is the reality of Jesus' arrival, not so much the, the details, the fact that he really is the Son of God. He came to save people from their sins. That really matters. But there's another connection that I want to talk about that's absolutely intriguing that sheds even more light and more depth of meaning to the coming of Jesus and what it means for us, for you, for me, for all of humanity, because there was something intriguing that took place in the life of Israel at the end of September. They had, like we have, a rhythm to our years. You know, we have 
if you start at the first of the year, we have New Year's Day and it's a holiday and it kind of wraps up the, the season that begins with Advent and, it, and finishes at Christmas or really finishes at New Year's and then life returns more to normal. Well, and then we begin in a few weeks to think about Lent and or the events of Holy Week. And that's kind of the rhythm of our year. And then after that would be Pentecost as we think about it in terms of Christian terms. There, there are some other holidays that come along that we regularly remember in our country, Memorial Day, the 4th of July, Labor Day, gets into the fall, Thanksgiving, and then we're back to Advent and Christmas. So we have a rhythm to our year that includes the importance of, of Christian emphasis, but we also have a rhythm to our year that includes some national events that we have all agreed are important and we celebrate together. So in the same way, they had a rhythm to their year and God had instituted certain things to happen so that they would observe certain things. And one of those happened in September. And so we want to talk about what that means and why it matters to us, because it's very clear from the detail we have in the historical record, and most of it from Luke chapters one and two, it's very clear that the shepherds were out before October. It's very clear based on the chronology of Zechariah's service and Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel visiting Mary during the sixth month, and nine months later would be September and Jesus would be born. And that's a big deal, but it's enriched by what else God was doing. So let's agree in just a few minutes, we'll take a break, catch our breath, gather back here and look again at when Jesus was born and why that matters. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I hope you'll stay with us because it only gets better from here. We'll be right back. I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. 
founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level. Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. As we celebrate our five-year anniversary, America Out Loud has expanded its mission through a newly designed website with a host of new contributors, all carrying a vibrant message of hope and survival for this country we love. AmericaOutloud.com. Together, we'll secure the future for generations to come. Continuing here on Faith Is with our look at when was Jesus born. And we do this because we want to strengthen our faith because we use this kind of working definition of faith that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so we're trying to develop confidence in the trustworthiness of God. We strengthen our understanding of the Bible. We we deepen our appreciation for how God has explained things to us and revealed things to us. And, and aren't you glad that God is a revealer of truth to us? We wouldn't even know him if he didn't reveal himself to us. God is only knowable because he has chosen to reveal himself to us and to let us in on it. And so we've been looking at that, and we've been trying to answer the question, when was Jesus born? And I trace that through use of some historical information that we have, and from Luke chapters 1 and 2, we started by saying that the shepherds, when the angels announced to them, were out in the fields watching their flocks, and so we know from historical information that they would have been out there until early October at the latest, when it got cold and they needed shelter and warmth, they would have brought the flocks in from the field, so if the angel appeared to them while they were out in the field, it would have had to have been before October, certainly before mid-October. So we have a pretty good idea of when it was. We trace the service of Zechariah in the temple, and we recognize that he went to serve in mid-May to mid-June, because that was when his group, his Abijah group, served. We talked about how Luke gives us the story of him being chosen to go in and and offer incense, and how he saw an angel and heard the angel's message that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a baby. That baby was John the Baptist, and he didn't really believe the angel because he knew the reality was they were too old to have children, and the angel said, oh, it's going to happen, and since you didn't believe, you won't be able to talk about it until it happens, and then you'll be able to talk about it. So true enough, he comes out. Everybody realized something amazing had happened. He goes home, just as the angel said, and the angel, remember, had introduced himself or herself, whichever way you think of angels, to Zechariah and saying, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of the Lord. So this was high-level information, high-level messenger. Sure enough, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. She goes into seclusion, rejoicing for five months. And then 
Luke chapter 1 tells us the story of the angel visiting Mary in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So we're following that. So from mid-June, six months later would be sometime in December. So Mary hears from the angel, becomes pregnant, goes to visit Elizabeth. Their conversation confirms the, that what's been going on, that Elizabeth recognizes Mary is going to be the mother of, her, of Jesus, and they rejoice together. It's a very big deal. And we know that babies take nine months to get here. Sometimes it's a long nine months. Sometimes we think it goes by pretty quickly. But Jesus would have been born then sometime in September, probably mid to late September. We don't know exactly, but that's as close as we're able to tell. But that's pretty close from what the Bible has given us, a lot of this detailed information. So we ended at that point by saying we were only three months off. If Jesus was born mid to late September, we were just a little bit off in our celebration. We also reminded ourselves it didn't matter. We didn't need to change. But what I think is helpful and matters is that there are some other significant things that happen, and one of them happens in September in the life of God's people. Now, if you read the Old Testament scriptures, and they are so valuable and beneficial, you can read in Leviticus chapter 23, where God establishes certain festivals or feasts, or we might call them holidays, for his people. He says these are to be observed, and you're to be faithful in, in observing them. And there are seven of them. There are some other ones that God's people observe, but these are the seven that he gave them in Leviticus. There doesn't take anything away from some of the other ones that have been added, like Hanukkah and so forth. They're, 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 they have value, but we're focusing on these seven because these represent the broad scope of what God is doing. Not to diminish the others, don't, don't hear me saying that, but there's a reason we focus on these seven, because God seems to have used them for very interesting purposes. So the seven feasts, festivals, or holidays are Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. Well, Passover is probably the most familiar of all of those to most of us, and that's a celebration of, of the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. You remember they had a special meal. God gave them specific instructions and said if they followed those instructions and sprinkled the blood on the doorpost of their house that the, the angel of death would pass over that house, or a, a really, I find, fascinating way that that story is told in the Old Testament is that God literally protects the people in, inside from that. He puts, a, puts a, um, a barrier, a cover of some kind, so death cannot enter that house. And to none of our amazement, but to Pharaoh's amazement, he ends up compelling the people to leave, and they leave slavery in Egypt. And beginning with that meal that they ate in haste before they left, God instituted the, the celebration, the holiday, the feast of Passover to observe from that time forward. And Leviticus gives some detail about that, where it talks about all of these seven holidays, festivals, feasts that I want to mention. Right after Passover, in fact, I believe it's a week after Passover, comes the festival or holiday of unleavened bread. And unleavened bread has a number of references in the scriptures. Uh, it was the, it was the bread they were to eat for the Passover meal because they were leaving in haste. They didn't have time for the bread to raise and to 
to be what they might expect. So they, they didn't put leaven in it. They were to eat unleavened bread. There are other places in the scriptures where it gives us some tantalizing details about how they treated leaven at certain times. And, and the scriptures in the New Testament talk about the, the leaven of sin. So there's, there's an association of leaven with sin. So there's a lot of richness in this idea of unleavened bread and the, and the, the role of leaven in understanding what God is doing. So Passover, then the feast, festival, holiday, whatever you want to call it, of unleavened bread, then first fruits. Now, you may have heard of first fruits. It's, um, it's a valuable festival to remember. Israel was very dependent, as are all of us, really, and we just don't see it quite that way. They were very dependent upon the crops, and, and if they didn't have a good crop, they didn't eat very well. And so God had instructed them that when they had the harvest, they were supposed to bring the first of the harvest in and give it to him as a celebration. It's similar to what we talk about when we give God the first part of, of the money that we earn. That's what we call tithes and offerings, similar to that. So that was a separate holiday that they celebrated and they observed was first fruit. So we've had Passover, unleavened bread. First fruits would have been not too long after unleavened bread. And then the next holiday was Pentecost. And there were there was a specific period of time between first fruits and Pentecost, 50 days. And so the Pentecost was a time when Israel celebrated again at God's instruction. And we associate it with the Holy Spirit, and rightfully so. And we'll talk about some of these associations in a minute. But it's important to recognize that first fruits, 50 days later, Pentecost. Those were the spring holidays. There were three holidays in the fall, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles. Trumpets would be kind of an announcement idea. They probably blew the shofar or some things like that. It was a, it was a celebratory feast, again, a festival. And a lot of these were connected to the, to the agriculture uh, part of their life, the agrarian lifestyle they had. They needed to, um, to survive, so they would have these celebrations and this one was, was trumpets, then followed by the Day of Atonement. And that was a very big deal because that was the day that, that the whole nation, the whole group of God's people confessed their sin and brought that sin to God for atonement. One of the interesting things that they did on the Day of Atonement was they had a, what we call and what the Bible calls a scapegoat, where the priest would put his hand on the head of the goat and and symbolically transfer the sins of the people to the goat. And then they would drive the goat out away from the, the people out into the wilderness as, as a symbolic way of seeing how God would remove their sin from them and how important it was that they deal with sin on the Day of Atonement. And, and that's still celebrated today. You probably recognize several of these feasts. You'll hear them mentioned even today. And then the last one was the festival or holiday or feast of tabernacles that's kind of interesting because during the feast of tabernacles the people were instructed to move out of their homes and to live in what we might call a tent a temporary shelter and they were instructed to build this shelter and stay in it for a week and it was a reminder that god had had them live in shelters temporarily on their way from egypt to the promised land and he wanted them to remember that and I think he wanted them to remember one more thing, and that's what we're going to talk about in, in its significance. So people have looked at this series of holidays in the Old Testament and, and tried to understand why God gave them to us. 
And remarkably, it's, it's as though God is using all of these kinds of things to point us to the story of Jesus and to the coming of Christ to save people from their sins. So it's not too difficult for us to think about Passover and to recognize, we've heard that connection made a number of times, that Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We understand that, that he was crucified at the Passover time. And so we think of Passover in terms of salvation, in terms of the deliverance from Egypt, and in terms of how Jesus died for the sin of the world. Then we get right away after that to the holiday feast festival of unleavened bread, and it reminds us of the burial of Jesus. The bread didn't rise, and, and it's equated with, as people look at this and study it, and say, look how God has told us the story of Jesus in these festivals, feasts, holidays. Unleavened bread represents the burial of Jesus, because Jesus died and was buried. And then first fruits represents, sure, you guessed that, resurrection. Well, when a harvest comes up, that's as though new life has come. When it's brought in, it's, it's life-sustaining for the people because they have food to eat, and they will be well for another year pending next year's harvest. And so they have a big celebration of first fruits. They thank God and, and honor God. And so it's really easy to see how that's equated with resurrection. So Jesus' death at Passover, burial, unleavened bread, and resurrection, first fruits. Now, some people get a little nervous when we talk about these Old Testament images, and, and I want to assure you, you shouldn't get nervous about that. Uh, not at all. Remember, these are our people too. We, many of us, probably most of the people listening to me today are Gentiles, and we were engrafted into this, to this tribe that started way back then, and this is our history too now. And it's a remarkable thing how God has given us these these pictures, these windows into what he was up to, even way back then when we didn't really know the full story, the full story only was revealed when Jesus came in, and we have the story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Pentecost, unleavened bread, first fruits, Jesus' death, Jesus' burial, Jesus' resurrection, and then Pentecost. Fifty days later, their celebration of Pentecost we associate with the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is rightfully so, because we read that that's when the Holy Spirit came. The Spirit came at Pentecost, and Pentecost was this festival, this feast. Isn't that, isn't that cool how in these springtime holidays that God had given his people, they have been acting out the whole story of the coming of Jesus for all of these years, year after year after year. That's, that's one reason that I like that our church, we tell the story of Jesus every year, starting at Advent, and we highlight the, the life of Jesus all the way up through the Ascension, all the way through January, February, March, April, May. We follow the life of Jesus to remind ourselves that this is what matters. Here, they had these holidays to point to the coming of Jesus, and now we can look back and say, wow, what a rich explanation God has provided for us. What an incredible effort he went to, to help his people understand that there was coming someone who would make all the difference in their lives. And so we see Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost, death, burial, resurrection, gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, just, it's just remarkable. I don't see how we cannot be 
uh, excited about that. And so that's the kind of the historical summary in those four feasts of Jesus' first coming. Well, there was a period of time between Pentecost and the next feast, and, and that feast came, that was the Feast of Trumpets. Well, what do we associate with trumpets? And I, I think this is just really remarkable. We associate with trumpets with the return of Jesus, his second coming. It will be announced that way. We read some really dramatic things in the New Testament, but it's remarkable to think that, that they had a feast that reminds us, that, that equates to us with the coming of Jesus the, the second time, where he would be announced with trumpets, and he's going to come in a very different way than he came the first time, and it's characterized by this Feast of Trumpets. It's followed by in the sequence that God gave us in Leviticus chapter 23, it's followed by the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement I mentioned earlier was when they brought their sins to God and confessed them so that they could be atoned for at that particular festival once a year. That was what was explained in Leviticus. We understand, and we look at this in terms of God's salvation history, that the Day of Atonement is representative of the Day of Judgment. Because when Jesus returns, the Bible tells us that everything's going to be made right. All the wrongs will be made right. Everything will have to be corrected. This will be the day of judgment. Those that follow Jesus will be welcomed in. Those that have chosen not to will not be welcomed in. And so judgment is a serious, serious event. And the Day of Atonement was a serious, serious festival. So you go from the celebration of of harvest and trumpets and the return of Jesus to the solemn realization that sin had to be dealt with, the wrongs had to be made right, the sin was symbolically placed on the scapegoat. That was one of the things that they did and driven out from the, from the company of the people out of the camp, so to speak, out away from the people carrying their sins away. And this reminds us of the day of judgment that we need to be prepared for. We talk about preparation and advent, advent, that's part of what we mean. The pre preparation so that we are right with God, so that we are faithful followers of his, so we are people of the covenant, shall we say. And, and I remind people, this is not something to be feared unless you're trying to play both sides of the street. Well, I want a little bit of God just enough so maybe I can make it through that, but I don't want so much of God that I have to give up what I want to do. You know, the real heart of temptation comes down to, do I do what I want to do, or do I do what God wants me to do? And that's very well represented in the Day of Atonement, where we have to decide, do I follow what God wants me to do, or do I do what I want to do? And the temptations, even back in the garden, were not about, come follow me. Satan didn't say, come follow me. Satan said, follow your own wants, your own wishes, your own desires, when he tempted them to eat of the fruit that God said, leave alone. So temptation, judgment really comes down to, do we choose to do what God asks us to do, expects us to do, commands us to do? Or do we say, no, nah, I think I'll do it my way. And uh, well, I hope I'll be okay in the end. Uh, God's not into the hope I'll be okay. God's into the follow me faithfully. Your life will be best for that. And so then the final feast in all of this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I mentioned earlier, Tabernacles is where the people would move out of their homes and live in a temporary shelter. We would call it a tent. 
Uh, they would have had some other type of structure probably that wouldn't be like our tents, but it was a temporary place for them to live. And it was a reminder that when they left Egypt, they lived in these temporary structures on their way to the promised land. And God didn't want them to forget all of that. That was part of the story. But I think there's another part of that that, that is absolutely fascinating and, and so beneficial to help us understand. When God's people left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. Remember, God parted the waters. They went to Sinai. God began to give them instructions, began to teach them how to get along with a holy God, began to explain everything that they needed to do, including how they were to set up camp. And they were to set up their arrangement, the, the people around a central meeting place. We call it a tabernacle. They set up a, it was a temporary portable worship center, we might say. Uh, we, we might call it a church. It, it was the place where the people paid homage to God, where they worshiped. And intriguingly enough, it's the place that God came to move in and dwell among his people. The scriptures talk about how God himself visibly came and entered into the holy place, and he was right there in the center of the life of his people. They were all living around him, but he was the central focus, and he was visibly present among his people. And we call that the tabernacle. We call this feast the Feast of Tabernacles. And this feast took place. Yeah, you're way ahead of me, I know. You're, you're a bright audience. You're way ahead of me. This feast took place in late September every year. So here the people are living in their temporary shelters, reminded of how they traveled out of Egypt. God was the central figure in all of that. In the temporary worship center, the tabernacle, his visible presence was there. And now Jesus, who becomes the visible presence of God with his people, being born as a baby, arrives into our world in September Perhaps, uh, I can't prove it, but I think you see where the evidence has led us, perhaps, and intriguingly, at the time they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, where they were living in these shelters, and Jesus comes to live among his people, then in the same way he was visibly present among his people in that original tabernacle. I looked it up, and and. Uh, I was really quite fascinated to find this because I remember years ago hearing the word tabernacle used more than we do now. We don't use that word very much. It's kind of, a, of an outdated word. But I thought I remembered hearing some quotes from the Bible about that. And so I looked it up and I didn't find what I thought I would find. But, but I found this from John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Did you get that? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the translation. It's called the tree of life version. That's the translation. We usually say the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but tabernacled is the same idea. And can you imagine? Look at the richness of God's revelation that Jesus is born during the Feast of Tabernacles, showing us that God has come to dwell among us, to live among us. However we use the words, you know, you can say, well, that word tabernacle, you're just making it up. I don't think so. The concept is sound. 
however we express it, the concept of sound, that, that God himself came and lived among his people. We know that from the ancient record in the Old Testament, when they were living in tents surrounding that temporary worship center that we call the tabernacle, we know that God came down and visibly entered that, that center so that they would know he was there. We also know he visibly led them through the, through the rest of their journey because he would move ahead of them and they would follow. And here we are reminded in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is so cool. And one more thing. In Matthew chapter 1, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him, are you ready for it? Of course you are. You know where I'm going. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't it amazing the extent to which God would want to communicate to us, to his people over all time and in all places, that he desperately wants us to know he is with us? I don't know about your circumstances today. I don't know what life's ups and downs have brought you. But when you're a follower of Jesus, you have the assurance that God is with you. Remember Jesus' promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. And now here, even in the birth of Jesus, that we have come to discover he was born mid to late September. The Feast of Tabernacles was held mid to late September, and God sent his son to be with his people. During that period of time, they were remembering leaving Egypt and being led by the visible presence of God among them. God really is with us, and God is with you when you follow him. And if you're not following him, Advent's the time to prepare get ready to go home. Turn your life in his direction. The good news of the gospel is there's a new king has arrived. Believe the good news. Give your allegiance to Jesus. That's what he asks. And then he says, I will be with you, Emmanuel, God with us, because he tabernacles among us. Aren't you thankful that God is so kind to us, that he blesses us so much? You be blessed this week. And I'll be back next week and we'll be blessed some more together. Thanks for listening.